Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of Skirt, a real horror show only on the FYIZ podcast feed. I'm John Walker, and I'll be your host as we talk to horror author Gemma Files. This is actually part two of my conversation with Gemma. If you heard part one, you heard us discuss her novel, Experimental Film, and some of the life experiences and creative inspiration that went into that book. In this episode, it's a little bit more of a grab bag. We talk mostly about Gemma's short fiction from her collections In That Endlessness, Our End, and Spectral Evidence, and more about her process as a writer, and actually even a couple of movies that she and I both enjoy that we just sort of... Uh, compare notes on. So uh, yeah, if that doesn't entice you, I don't know what should. This is me and Gemma talking about horror stuff. The Puppet Motel feels to me like a story that is rooted in real world experience and then has your own special imagination uh, laid on top of it. And then it has some of these I don't know, kind of mythological elements that you might say are a theme in your stories. The way that the the way that the supernatural manifests itself it has a tangible aspect, but also kind of an unknowable aspect. And you know, th- it really hit me, uh, knocked me for a loop. Maybe just talk a little bit about the inspiration behind uh, the Puppet Motel. Yeah, definitely. Um, yes, I uh, I have a course that I teach um, intermittently at Lit Reactor, which is called Write What You Fear. The whole point of this is to take personal experience and use it to root a story which is otherwise unlikely to occur in real life. And, um, I, you know, it's, 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 it's a pattern that I've developed over the years. I used to uh, be very much, I'm just going to make up everything. But, you know, I think that was back when I hadn't had a lot of experience. So there you go. Um, so the puppet motel comes out of the fact that a couple of years ago for a little while, um, I actually did manage two Airbnbs for, um, a friend of my husband and it was not a good experience. It was not a good job. Um, you know, I mean, I, I made money. That was nice. Uh, but yeah, everything that I complained about in the story was something that actually happened to me. And even the puppet motel itself, the uh, the really, really creepy apartment, as opposed to the House of Flowered Sheets, which is the nice apartment, um, just about everything that I described about that apartment physically was the way that apartment was. It was one of those places where you, you know, you go in to clean it every day and you have to put on really bright music <laughs> because otherwise you're just going to be worrying all the time that something's going to come up and, you know, just um, tap you on the back of the head. Um, it was creepy in every possible way. Um, oh, except for the non-Euclidean floor thing uh, that actually comes from an apartment that I stayed in, another Airbnb that I stayed in when I stayed overnight in New York doing uh, a reading. I, that felt like a, a real sort of uh, joke for those who know as well. That you know, if you've read enough of this stuff, if weird fiction is your is your thing, you you know about non Euclidean. You know, it, it's yeah. it's like a mathematical form of this. Just feels wrong. This <laughs> this this shouldn't be. Uh, uh, and the notion that this character in this story, as a lot of your protagonists are, is this kind of 
um, I, I have written down in my notes, underlined twice, the researcher. You know, it's like this person who is delving, this person who's digging. Um, I think you sort of lean into that, and I love that, because otherwise you have to go through this whole rigmarole of... Uh, you know, the person doubting the existence or, or not owning up to things. I mean, in a, of course, in a short story, you have the ability to cut right to the chase and just drop yourself in or drop the reader in oh, yeah. where you want them to be. But you still have to build them up to that point and sort of set up like, what are kind of the rules of this world? And so in this story, yes, we have someone who might, who might roll a marble and then declare the floor is non-Euclidean. They're already in that headspace. But I think they're still surprised to see themselves confronted with something truly outside the norm. Absolutely. Like I'm a skeptic, but I'm also constantly looking for something that's going to blow my skepticism out of the water. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't raised with any kind of religion. Um, my parents uh, basically presented uh, all religions as being a form of mythology to me. So um, as when I was a kid, I read, you know, the kids' version of the Bible, but I also read uh, a lot of stuff about Norse mythology and Greek mythology and ancient Egyptian mythology. Um, and, you know, they, they were all like forms of fairy tales for me. But, um, but yeah, I, I think that there is always some part of you that's like, well, but, <laughs> but what if? <laughs> because, you know, essentially uh, life is something that um, orbits around a huge mystery and the mystery is of course the mystery of mortality um the the thing that we know nothing about um and the thing that we know that we must find out about um but whatever we find out we're not going to be able to communicate it to anybody else so mm, yeah <laughs> yeah i went there well i mean honestly i was going to get there uh, pretty soon anyway because it's always on my mind it's just hovering you, you said it's the thing behind everything or something like that yeah. it is it is always kind of hovering behind every decision and if you play that game with yourself you can make yourself think about how you asking someone to like stop at the store for you could be like what if something happens to them what if they get in a wreck in the parking lot what if something you know what if the store blows up <laughs> there is something about the finality of it and the cause and effect of decisions made already yes yeah um and i have this whole thing about heart disease or cancer or whatever it is and not to be glib at all because obviously those things are very serious but i feel like so many people are we're walking around with their death inside us already and we don't know what it is you know um that that gives me like you know i'll stare up at the ceiling at night thinking about that sometimes it's like <laughs> yeah. what if it's already there and that oh, becomes yeah. like a presence that becomes like um uh, uh, you know, the old hag squatting on your chest. That becomes the, the, the tone that you hear in a creepy apartment. It just becomes this thing that's right on the edge of perception that you're like, well, whatever pleasures you find, it's all, it's all in denial of that fact, you know? And yeah, that's right. You're, you're on the run from it the whole time. It's, um, it's going to get you eventually. I mean, I think in terms of my characters being researchers, um, I mean, who knows? It, it might go all the way back to M.R. James, who's, you know, one of my formative people um the idea of being an antiquarian um but you know i mean I, I get that i am an autodidact and i taught myself things that maybe other people weren't all that interested in but by the time i was in high school i had a pretty good um foundational understanding of stuff like witchcraft and demonology and you know monsters from all around the world. You seem to have a pretty good recall as well of things yes. you've encountered. And I, I find that the references to things in your work, like the the 
the culture that you set your stories within, pop culture and like, you know, folklore and et cetera, always feels very lived in and detailed. And sometimes it requires a reread of a paragraph or two. And I'll flip back a few pages and be like, what? Oh, yeah, she did explain this. <laughs> but like, yeah. but there are also times, and again, with weird fiction, you're not supposed to always know what's going on. So I'm sure you're constantly thinking about like, how much is too much of an info dump and how much is just the right amount. And I think, again, having a character who's digging into these things already sort of helps you along with that. You do away almost entirely with like the dusty library. It's all like someone sitting there hunched over a laptop in the middle of the night, which again, I think is how we pursue these little these little nightmare obsessions uh, in real life. So it's very relatable. Yeah. I mean, it's a great technique for making it feel like the world we know where we don't get answers at all. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, I, you know, thank you very much. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, I'm 52 years old. I'll be 53 this year. So in fact, I didn't have the internet until I was 25. So, um, again, my formative years, it's like, I did spend a lot of time in libraries and I did, you know, at, at some point I'd like to go back and do something about that, you know, almost like rooted in, um, yeah, a time period so few people know about these days. It's like <laughs> libraries, microfiches. <laughs> the Puppet Motel, um, another thing that really sticks with me about that is that sense of just a, a wrong place. Uh, like I have always felt that there's something creepy about a place a lot of people have passed through, an unspectacular place, like a like a, a, a lobby outside an elevator in a parking garage or something like that. I will look oh, around yeah, and be absolutely. like, oh my God, this place has been here since the fifties the or the sixties. How many people have passed through here? What was happening when they passed through? What mark did they leave? I guess that's kind of a uh, overlook hotel sort of concept of like the things that creep you out being like a mark left by something. Um, yeah. But like, I think about that all the time. Um, in fact, uh, I don't know if you've read the Adam Neville had a book recently, Derelictions, which is like yeah. stories that take place where something has happened. Weird. Yeah. I absolutely love that. Well, I've always thought about that as a super creepy thing is like the place, the, the atmosphere, you know? So, and that's so much of my favorite um, horror fiction does that talks about the experience of being in a place and you evoke those senses. You really engage them a lot in your writing, the smells, the sounds, but that's idea of being in a wrong place. One time my wife and I were looking for, we were looking to buy a, a, a home to move out of our apartment and there was this cheap row home in a desirable part of town, but kind of on a little side street that hadn't quite been uh, you know, treated well in years. It was so it was a little rundown place. And we walked in and the real estate agent, I think, knew it was kind of a dump, but was trying very hard to sort of put a positive spin on it. And, you know, my wife was walking around, uh, like, you know, poking at things, asking questions. And I just got this sense of like, oh, get me out of here now. Because I had this vision of myself living there and having like, never feeling right. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. And it seems like you must because that's what your story's about. And it just made me feel so like, like I had, I still, when I think about it, I get this sinking feeling. There was one place I lived in college that was like that, that were my first night in, I just moved in all my stuff and my roommates weren't around and it was during the summer. So all my friends were still at home and I went to college near where I grew up. So it was like I could visit home, but I was about an hour away, you know, sitting in an apartment that I'd just gotten. Right. And, and it was just like, uh, 
I felt this feeling of this was before the internet. This was before texting, before feeling you're like you're constantly plugged into some kind of hive mind. Um, and I just felt so like gross and alone and the wood paneling and the cheap tile just made me start to feel like nauseous, you know? And I had that feeling in that row home that day. And I've, I had that feeling reading your story. It's just like, ugh, I don't want to be here. I don't want anyone to be here, but I, my, I can get out of here, you know? Yes, exactly. And the, you know, the cornerstone, I, I think of every, um, every horror experience is that mounting realization that something is wrong. Um, you know, uh, I describe it as the, the Bill Duke moment. Um, there's a, there's a movie, a black exploitation movies from the second wave of the 1990s, um, where Bill Duke walks into, um, an interrogation room and sits down next to, next to a guy across from our protagonist and goes, you know, you fucked up. Right. And, <laughs> and yeah, to me, that's like the cornerstone moment of of almost every horror nar- narrative is the the dawning realization that you know you fucked up because now you are stuck somewhere yeah. and something feels wrong and you're and you're in a situation where you can't just go oh I gotta leave <laughs> you know and never come back and that's not an option for one reason or another you know it's not an option because it's your job to come back. Um, it's not an option because you just lost the place that you used to live and now you have to go and live in that place. It's not that it's not an option because X, Y, and Z. Um, and you know, it, what I like about the, the feeling of wrongness is that it can apply to anywhere. It can imply, it can apply to the inside of your head if, if you need it to, um, you know, it can be something massive and foundational world building on the outside, or it can be something very small on the inside. Um, I wrote a story once called uh, One in the Morning and One at Night, um, which was entirely about, <laughs> I, I had a moment where I went to um, throw some garbage out in the chute of my apartment um, then and had this very strange thought like, what if X, what if I see a figure at the end of the hall and it just starts running towards me? Um, and an entire story came out of that. And the entire story was just the progression of this thought until it takes over a person's interior landscape. Um, and yeah. They, they fucked up <laughs> just by thinking about it. <laughs> well, I mean, I think there's two things I want to pick up there. One is just those images you put in your own head that you can't ever uh, take out. Those those suck. I remember being a kid. I couldn't sleep when I was a kid. And I had to I had to eventually become a horror buff to get through it because that was the only way to own it. And I still can get myself good and creeped out. But I generally, I could now go to sleep in a dark cabin while thinking about stuff that scares me and, 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 and my overriding priority would be, you got to get some rest, man. You know, like I could do that now when I was a kid, I couldn't do that. It was like, don't think about anything scary, which means you're going to think about the scariest thing. And I would do that to myself every night, like closing my eyes tight, like trying not to picture what's staring at me while, and then that if I open my eyes, I would see, you know, and that is exactly the way it goes. Um, when I was a kid, it was uh, scary movies and scary books. And, you know, I could look at the front of a book and scare myself with it. I, you know, just read the flap copy, you know, not read the book at all. Um, because whatever I made up in my head would be 
10 times scarier than the book itself would probably be. At one point I was um, uh, studying a book of uh, photos from horror movies that my dad left behind when he, when he, um, he uh, broke up with my mom and went back to Australia. And every morning I'd get it out and just flip through it, make myself look at the grossest things in it until mm. eventually they didn't peck me the same way, which was, which was good. Yeah, the, I think a fleeting glimpse of something is scarier. And that is why so often the scariest, I mean, even though people are, they really bristle at the idea of horror movies where, quote unquote, nothing happens in them. And I love a lot yeah. of, I love a lot of movies where big things happen. So I'm not saying, I'm not anti-plot at all. But sure. I love atmosphere and I love the glimpse and I love the part of the story where the person is going, what is going on? Because that is so relatable and so real. And if someone can make that part work, you can almost go anywhere from there because you're looking again for, um, I believe I heard you say in another interview, it's a quote that it, Wes Craven has. I think several people have made this point, but Wes Craven had that point about, you know, uh, that horror has rules and that's why yeah. it, it, it's attractive to people. Um, you know, I think there's some truth to that because it doesn't mean you hear the rules and it doesn't mean you know the rules and it doesn't mean you can even follow them. It just means that you get the sense that what's happening is happening because of something. Yes, exactly. So much of that researcher character, it's a funny thing. Um, is like the lesson learned if you were to try to take a lesson from a lot of horror is like, hey, don't nose around. <laughs> hey, don't, don't dig too deep. I was talking to this, I believe, uh, I think it was actually... Um, Nathan Ballingrad, uh, for a previous episode of this show, we were talking about how much of horror is about someone who's like desperate to maintain the status quo or to return things to a status quo and how, yeah. um, and I think like Sarah Reed's fiction does a similar thing of like saying, well, how about we address transformation as sometimes an ecstatic thing? Um, yeah. Some kind of leveling up rather than always being like, you're changing the way things are and that's bad. Cause that can start to feel like, again, it can start to feel like it's rooted in some kind of weird uh, societal stuff that, I mean, of course, horror is rooted in all that societal stuff, but why are we so afraid of changing? Why are we so afraid of something kind of like entering into us and changing us? Maybe there's a resistance to change that we as humans are clinging to uh, that, that well, makes it, us it's afraid of it. extraordinarily normative and restorative way to look at things. You know, the idea that, well, whatever we had before, it must have been better. And I'm like, this is not borne out by any study of history. Um, you know, it's <laughs> even the most cursory study of history does not bear this thesis out. So, yeah, I think change is often good. Change is, you know, if nothing else, it teaches you that things don't stay the same. That sounds stupid. It sounds like a truism, but it's a truism because it's true, you know, and it's better to know that and to move through your realization that, oh, life is unfair. And sometimes, you know, things are good, but then they change and um and then maybe they change again and they become good in a different way you know uh that nothing stays the same and um you know there's that 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 thing about nostalgia nostalgia is a drug in a lot of ways but it's also pain um you know it is uh, literally nostalgia is our pain um you're looking back on something and you have that ache you know, it's like, why can't it be like that again? I'm like, well, because you're 50 as opposed to 15. You know, you are a different person. You are a completely different person and the world is different. And that's not such a terrible thing. I no, mean, but if, again, you, if you want to make yourself sad, that's the thing that I mean, if, if you if you if you eliminate that 
that idea that you should be able to have things as they were, or that you should be yeah. able to relive something that already happened. Um, mm -hmm. uh, if you let that go, it frees you up from a lot of sadness, I think. I mean, not to get too new agey about it, but I think that like that desire to like hold on to things is, yes. like, it makes so much sense on an emotional level. And I think that's why just surround yourself with people that you trust and get yourself in a, in a comfortable environment. If you're lucky enough to have that, you can change and grow and not be afraid of it, you know, yeah, exactly. but the idea of like being like a drift in the void, which is honestly sort of my philosophical idea <laughs> is that <laughs> it is all sort of meaningless. I mean, it, it all means something because of how meaningless it is. Yeah. Although we don't know what comes after we have to prepare ourselves for the idea that we blink out yeah. and, 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 and whatever we do right now is actually the most meaningful thing in the universe. Exactly. And things matter because we don't, have them and if you know in whatever small way we have them we don't have them for long um you know and i think that's that's certainly something i i feel that i learned um you know from having a child uh totally yeah i know <laughs> super super lame. i always think of it as like you know you're just not the main character in your own story anymore or or at least not all the time when you have a kid it's like you see yourself going oh yeah there is there now i want to stick around uh shit. Yeah. like fuck. before i was so happy to think of like <laughs> what if i blink out wouldn't that be the best for everybody <laughs> you know and now it's like, like nope nope now i kind of want to see every minute that i can see of of what's coming you know because yeah because I got to be here for this person, but also I want to see who they are. I want to be there for them. Well, what's that What's that phrase where, you know, it's like when you commit to having a child, you commit to um, having your heart, wearing your heart on the outside of your body for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. um, and it is like, you know, like a piece of you kind of breaks off and becomes another human being, which is insane. Well, I've heard that rephrased even more painfully, which is to say that your heart's outside your body and the world is playing keep away with it. <laughs> That's true. That's also true. I was pleasantly surprised reading the story, uh, The Church in the Mountains, that it takes place in the experimental film averse. Am I right here? That there's a reference to the silver nitrate uh, fire. You are correct. So I, and I didn't know how much you do that. I did read another of your stories, uh, uh, Black Bush from the collection Spectral Evidence, mm -hmm. that was like, oh, this is part of a world that I don't know the mythology of, but I can tell there's been stories prior to this one that I probably should read to get the full context. Yeah. But it, it does enough of explaining itself and dropping you in at a point where this, this tale is self-contained in its way. But I felt particularly yeah i felt like i was in the in the in the club because uh, uh, i caught all the references in the church in the mountains and that was another story that you mentioned as one that you know that you thought was noteworthy i would love to talk about that story a little bit because it ties in with these themes we're talking about of the the infernal art object the thing that you know once seen can't be unseen and i think this story has a particularly unsettling way that it affects the uh the, the i will say poor protagonist of the story what happens to them is truly awful yeah i mean and again this was based on the fact that for a long time um you know i had a memory of having seen this movie um which was very much like the movie that i described 
and I could never track down what it was. I think I actually know what it is now, um, but I still feel that the version that I saw might have been a uncredited Canadian remake of the original thing. Um, because uh, the, the, the original thing has Shelley Winters in it, and I really do not remember a person who looked like Shelley Winters uh, in, in the thing in my head. But yeah, you know, um, and always I'm interested in why something stuck, sticks around in your head, why something freaks you out, why something becomes a memory that you you turn over again and again and you're like, you know, oh, that was awful. Well, the, and, the, the less you understand the context of it at, at, at that original yeah. moment of inception, the more powerful it becomes over years. Yes, exactly. So I thought, is there a way that I can describe this and make it work within context and actually make it creep people out the way that the original thing creeped me out? And again, I dropped in a fair amount of stuff about the tax shelter era here in Canada, um, that, that wonderful period when we uh, tried to make Hollywood-type films um, and ended up making things like, um, making things like scanners. <laughs> you know? We blew ourselves out in about five to seven years, I'd say, at, at that point, um, because offering people a hundred percent return on investment in English speaking Canadian film um, makes for a really good tax shelter. Uh, doesn't make for great filmmaking in a lot of ways, but some amazing things came out of that era as well. The silent partner, for example, um, and uh, black Christmas and, you know, and stuff like that. Um, but uh, black Christmas, you can't mention it without me saying is maybe one of my favorite movies ever yeah. period I, I i'm i'm so shocked that it still packs a wallop that it still feels so modern to me like even the way that the characters talk to each other um it feels i don't know i think that uh yeah and, and i've showed it to my 13 year old son recently and he was yeah. he stayed up a couple hours afterwards talking about how great it was and how scary it was and i was like okay he's a pretty jaded pop cultural consumer of today and that movie rattled him more than he's seen it. You know, he saw Halloween and loved it, but I think he saw why yeah. th this one's like my special favorite. And, um, uh, you know, I, I love also just like, I love journeyman filmmakers like that. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm fascinated with that movie. Like it feels to me like it's a little magical thing. And I, I do love John Carpenter and I think Halloween is justifiably held up, but I, whenever someone holds it up a little too high, I'm like, you know, what's right there above it though <laughs> is, <laughs> That Christmas. Which to me feels, yeah. honestly, the tropes it ties in, the call coming from inside the house, the person who like lives in the house, yep. the sort of mysterious backstory of this multiple-voiced person who appears to be so sad and upset and so broken. Uh, you never find out anything about where that all comes from, and I love it. Yeah. You know, and... Um, and at the end, he's still there. At the end, yeah, uh, exactly. he, he's sitting up there and she's unattended. I don't know. Yeah, you. Yeah, it, it, yeah it's horrifying. Uh, yeah, and, it, and, and again, you know, one of my favorite characters from that is Barb. You know, the, the girl who's, you know... Margot Kidder. Rich and disaffected and she's constantly drunk. <laughs> a very, a very again, to me, like, what a, what a refreshing thing. And I can't believe they had it in 74. This sort of, like... A character who's unapologetic. There's no like bad girl lesson. I mean, she is a victim, but yeah. spoiler, but she, it's not like she's a victim because she's drunk or because she's 
uh, you know, frank about sex or whatever. It's like, and the way she talks back to the, the prank caller on the phone is, I don't know. I, I, I was, I was just jarred in a very pleasant way by that movie. And that character is one of the things I walked away talking about was like, Oh my God, Barb, like you just don't yeah. see characters like that in other movies made back then. Um, yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's very, yeah, as you say, it's, it's very modern seeming. Um, there is something about it that even though it is such a period piece that just, makes it seem like it could be happening anytime. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so much to like about, about that era, but it's also a very funny era to me. And in a lot of ways, um, it, it leads back to that thing that I talk about in experimental film, uh, about how difficult it was to put together a, um, a course on Canadian film history, because a lot of Canadian film history is kind of, interstitial it's kind of like dropped into you know it's like we we saved a certain amount of stuff you know it's it's sort of like it's sort of like that old thing with doctor who where you know it's like where the bbc just deleted a bunch of shit <laughs> you know yeah. it's like oh it doesn't matter nobody's gonna care about this you know and um you know that's like the whole history of canadian film <laughs> well th there are those things you hear about though that like that are written yeah. about and people have done scholarship on this moment and how yeah. it affected people and you get down yeah. to like can i see a clip and they're like no everything was wiped to save tape or whatever and you're like what like <laughs> na nowadays we would just never do that but nowadays i think we're so navel gazy and self-archiving that it's impossible to think a future person could weed through all the, I mean, just imagine all the thumb drives that someone's going to have to go through oh, yeah. some future civilization, assuming <laughs> they have a USB conversion module. Yeah, assuming that. <laughs> and that their tentacled hands can operate that sort of thing. No, I, yeah. I just, th I just think that it's, it's, yeah, it, it really comes across. And I think that you refer to that in the story, that notion of stuff that's just lost because it, people weren't precious about it. And that's another thing that yeah. feeds into my, the sort of humble nature of using a work of art as like a conveyance for something from the other side is that it's a flawed thing, but if like, oh, you could start a cult, um, mm -hmm. you could, uh, get some kind of necromancer to open a portal, or you could, uh, have, have a guy write a book that makes people go crazy and chant your name. It's like, I, I just yeah. love that it makes you think that whatever is on the other side peering in at us is like, well, I've got options. And there's some of them that are like, I've got to sing, you know? <laughs> That's not great. Yeah. And some of them are like, I'm going to open an Airbnb, you know? <laughs> There's a story um, in uh, Spectral Evidence called uh, A Wish from a Bone that is like right. a kind of familiar story that's really well executed that then has a, an extra twist on it, which is that one of the characters we're entering into this otherworldly thing with knows a lot more than we think they know. And that, that changes the way we understand the story completely. I've been really happy the way that people have responded to that because it was entirely written out of um, a mythology that... I've had in the back of my mind since I was like 18. So, yeah. It's just like there's a deeper mythology than we, that, and it comes at us in a flash, but we also have this added element of the story where we're witnessing this, the frame you've put on it is different uh, than, than what you might expect. And, and, and I just say that to say that you, you know, that those added elements, those kind of nested narratives, the sort of indication of a truth behind the truth or a story behind the story, that's something you do really well within a short story format. And, and then you have the idea of something like these stories that are connected 
in improv, uh, there's a phrase, a hat on a hat. Yes. Is it sometimes a hat on a hat to say, well, this is happening in the same world as this? Or, or do, you, do you work hard to keep those worlds that are connected, like thematically consistent? Does it take away some of the fear factor of being like, well, now this is a world with Lovecraftian monsters and vampires, and now I don't know what world I'm in? I often think that uh, a primary dilemma of horror is, yeah, what, what kind of world are we living in? Um, there's a movie that I like a lot called The Pact, for example, um, which begins as a ghost story and then turns into something else. But really what it is from the beginning is a movie in which there's the something else, but there's also ghosts. <laughs> and, you know, and, right. and people are like, oh, you know, it really spun. And I'm like, what? Like, like from Dust Till Dawn, where there's crime, but there's also vampires. <laughs> you know? right. I, I had an argument with Roger Ebert about that once sitting next to each other um, in a screening room, uh, which was like the highlight of my critical, <laughs> my critical moment. But um, yeah, you know, I, I, I think it's often interesting to assume that everything, everything exists in the same world because the world is huge. You know, it's like, it's massive. It's, and I'm not just talking geographically, Graphically, I'm talking about the fact that there are so many different cultures and so many different languages, so much history, so much history that people have forgotten, you know, so much stuff that people just kind of trip across and they're like, holy fuck, you know, here's an entire new animal species. Here's an entire new, you know, here's an entire new this, here's an entire new that. And this thing is very much like this other thing, even though they are very, very far away from each other. Why is this thing so much like this thing? blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, I, I, I see the idea of things being interconnected as considerably more possible than things not being connected at all. Or, or, or that if you're in a world where reality is broken, that only one type of reality breaking thing would be going exactly. on. Yeah. Good point. No, I think you have, you You know, it's like, we're all starting off um, with the idea that we're in a world where reality is broken. Um, because I got to say that, you know, I, I don't think I've ever written a horror story, which was not about the supernatural to some degree or another, you know, um, natural horror does not hugely interest me. It's not, you know, I'm not a hostile person. I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a, uh, I mean, there are slasher movies I like. But um, I'm obviously because I like Black Christmas. Right. But it's like you could take that one and look at all the others as like, yeah, yeah. you're doing you're OK. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And even there, what I'm interested in is the stuff that isn't explained. What I'm interested in is the stuff that is not just, well, there's a dude and he's going around killing people. You know, I'm interested in. You know, it's like, why this guy? Why this place? Well, the darkness in that, there's like dark places in a house. There's dark corners. There's places, when you're downstairs in a house that has a third story, if there's a creak in the floor on that third story and you are the only person yeah. in the house, you can, you know, that's why I love having pets is I can just to say everything was my pets. Um, exactly. But if I've got a visual on all the pets and there's something going on upstairs, it's like, okay, uh, that means a 13-year-old may have done something. But if he's down here, then it really is like, oh, wait. But it's like you need you need that reason why there's a noise. You need to be able to tell yourself something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one day something truly bizarre and otherworldly could happen, uh, even if it's just yeah. otherworldly in the sense of like someone coming into your home. But you worry about those things so much more than they happen. And of course, it's a it's an 
oft-spoken thing about horror, that it gives you like a pressure release valve for these thoughts. Yeah. You know, I've often thought those times where I was on the edge of thinking something was unexplained. I've felt that, that tension of my mind almost snapping. You know, I felt that tension of, oh, for a second, I really wondered not just what's going on, but what the fuck is happening? Like, and then you see the explanation and you go, oh, phew. and you, but you, you can remember how close you were <laughs> to believing oh, in something that you would have said before was impossible. Absolutely. A big tension of horror is the reveal, you know, uh, in Stephen King and Dance Macabre talks about how, you know, the scariest thing is always what you don't see, uh, you know, whose, whose hand was I holding? You know, the thing behind the door uh, in the haunting that bulges the door out is considerably scarier than if you threw open the door and there's like a, you know, like a hundred foot bug, you'd be like, ah, hundred foot bug. But then in the back of your mind, there'd, there'd be, you know, a voice going, oh, thank God. I thought maybe it would be a thousand foot bug, <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the bug the bug can be any fucking size if you just don't open the door. And, right, uh, right, right. You, right. Yeah, and, and that's that's always the thing that is more interesting to me, you know. Um, and uh, I, I guess in terms of stringing things together, um, there's a book that I wrote called We Will All Go Down Together, uh, which is kind of a novel in stories, uh, because literally the backbone of the novel is a bunch of stories that I wrote earlier in my career and which I looked at at a certain point and went, oh, these are all obviously taking place in the same version of Toronto. And indeed, many of the characters in these stories obviously know each other. And um, yeah, I think I wrote like four of them and then I started writing stories where they would actually cross each other's path. Um, and then eventually I made up a back mythology to explain why they all were related to each other and why they all knew each other. Um, and out of that came the final uh, three or four pieces of um, fiction that link, that link all the stories in the, in the book together. I don't think it's lazy to go, oh, well, you know, here I need uh, an institute for parapsychological research. Oh, wait a minute. No, I made up an institute for parapsychological research. It's the Freihoven Institute, so let's use them again, you know, um, because I know who all those people are. Right. And, and that scene's going to be better because of that. Yeah. It deepens my connection with something. And I think as long as individual stories have their own discrete reasons for existing, which thus far yeah. I've seen to be the case, I think that's the sort of rule you set, you know, as a writer is like not so much, I don't know, there's a thing about leaving it all out on the field or whatever, that like you write every story like it's your last. It's a little hard to do that, but you do seem like someone who's trying to get as much like get as many ideas in there as possible without without breaking it yeah to some degree the idea of a shared universe um goes to the fact that in real life you can't control a lot but when you're creating a shared universe you can control it <laughs> yeah that's true and you can play around with that stuff yeah. and give people the comeuppance yeah For listeners out there, are there any writers right now that you are reading or loving um, that uh, that they should check out? God, so many. Um, I would always 
direct people towards Nadia Balkan, for example, who doesn't work as much as she should. But man, she is amazing. Her collection, She Said Destroy, is just some of the best, most fresh horror that I can think of. You know, also uh, generationally, I, I think she's an incredibly um, political writer in a very interesting way. Uh, another person who I'm intensely admiring of is Christy DeMeester, who uh, wrote a really wonderful novel called Below, but uh, also has uh, a bunch of short stories that just blow my socks off, particularly one that she wrote directly for Pseudopod called uh, the, the Room in the Other House. Uh, which I could listen to all day. And Haley Piper, who I just discovered, uh, who wrote uh, The the uh, the Worm and His Kings. There's just so many good people. God, Sir Reed, you know. Yeah, she's she's amazing. Yeah. It, it's a golden era for not just horror in general, Yeah. Um, but for, I mean, I hate, I don't know. I, I want to one day never have to say a phrase like, diverse voices or whatever again mm -hmm. but right now it's worth commenting on still uh my friend polly chattel uh has an excellent novel that came yeah. out last year and and you know i mean just people I, who i was thinking of polly chattel actually uh it seems like i don't know everywhere i turn there are options that are really attractive to me uh without adding to the old white guys on my bookshelf i heard the phrase decolonize your bookshelf a couple of years ago and it's really been sticking yeah. with me as like you know i'm guilty of it even though i consciously seek to sure. avoid it i also have not I wasn't work, I wasn't doing the work as they say um, and then yeah. you suddenly go this isn't work this is pure pleasure like this is great great stuff and I do think right now there seems to be like a bloom uh, talking about people I admire and also um, wonderfully not particularly likable main characters I got to blurb Elizabeth Hand's most recent uh, Castaneri mystery the book of lamps and banners and man so good all those books are so so good they all have a touch of the numinous. They all have a touch of horror, but they take place in, uh, you know, firmly uh, the quote, quote, normal world. And the main character is just such a, <laughs> such a bitch. She's amazing. <laughs> this old punk with a, <laughs> with a camera. Writers reveal more about themselves when they're trying to write the mundane stuff than when they are writing the horrific stuff. Like the horrific stuff is amped up and crazy, but when someone's writing what they think is a normal day, <laughs> it's like, that's where you really figure out what someone's like psychology is all about. That's the reality that, you know, that, that a writer sets up yeah. to say, I'm gonna break this reality. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, a uh, long time ago, my, my mother was always like, well, why don't you write what you know? And I'd be like, fuck that. Um, that's not the kind of thing that I'm interested in. But essentially, that's what I've ended up doing. I've ended up filtering all my interests uh, in the completely not mundane through my life and my mundane, the, the mundane parts of me. I guess. Uh, a comedian and author John Hodgman said, yes, no, write what you know, but no interesting things. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and to me, it's like, yeah, the, you are kind of defined. By, but I mean, that's where you reveal it in your writing. There's a one-to-one -one ratio of your thoughts to what's on the page. You know, you I mean, you can yeah. you can package your thoughts and you can spin them. But it's still like, if you don't know the words for what you're trying to express, it's not going to make it into the thing. You know, it's there's not going to be a score or an actor or uh, something that's going to come in and help you sell, you know, uh, 
words that just aren't conveying it. Yeah. Going back to what you said about stories that have a touch of the numinous to them or just a little bit of the supernatural. Um, you know, I like stories that are all over that spectrum. It doesn't really matter where you draw the line. I really only feel ripped off if I'm reading a story, uh, genre or not, but especially genre, where the whole point was, eh, it was all in someone's mind or it was the dream of yeah. a child and the whole story was just written to trick you into thinking it was one thing when it was another. Oh, um, I don't usually find that clever. I usually find that to be a, a big case of, well, what did we really do here? I mean, one of my favorite films of all time is Session 9, where on the one hand, you could argue that at least one person has been crazy this entire time, but everything that happens in the movie actually happens. <laughs> that is a classic. That, 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 is, that is almost like a, I guess it's a cult classic because I don't hear people talking about that movie enough. Yeah. But talk about a movie that has a sustained tension that no matter how many times you see it when you watch it it works on you again because it's all about the mood that it creates and the fact that gordon is doomed more or less from the beginning yep. um you know it is a movie that watching it again doesn't take away the the eerie power of it it's a little bit like an infernal i mean that's one of those that i could believe is an infernal object because you walk away from it and this little voice gordon is in your head you know and you can make that voice exactly. come out you've, you, you've got got Simon stuck in your head. I I absolutely love I absolutely love one of the things that I love from that is is the fact that no one hears those tapes except for one character. And And he's kind of the most uh, empathetic empathetic character and the most likable character in some ways, but he yeah. also is a little bit of that person who shouldn't no, be totally shouldn't be poking around yeah. in it. You know, a thing that happens when uh when he opens the box and he immediately cuts himself and then dust rains down into somebody's eye at the same time. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, you, there's, you know, that whole place is like a bag of secrets that nobody wants to know and nobody should know. But, but also the other thing that I love is that uh, he never, even he never hears the last tape. Even he never hears session nine. Right. Well, th there's that voiceover playing over the end that suggests, and again, and yeah. I don't think it's too much to leave you with the suggestion uh, that this movie has kind of infected us with the Simon, like that that we now realize that's the voice that comes to everybody yeah. who sort of feels like they're alone or lost, or and it's like, and that's a very mean thing for a malevolent spirit to do is to victimize people who are who are struggling, you know. Which again, we know that's sort of part of the mythology. But yeah, that movie just has an eerie magic, and I don't know if you've ever dug into the um, the deleted scenes would have ruined it. I don't know if you've seen. Have you yeah. seen those? Yeah. Um, There's a scene the, of like uh, a like a woman who like a, a past patient, I guess, who has stayed in the in the in the hospital, who's wandering around, and so her presence explains the the figure seen in the hallway and explain some of the things that happen in a way that would totally right. have taken away the power of them. And there's even a regrettable scene where she's like witnessing one of the murders and saying like, yeah. oh no, like, oh, the humanity, you know? And I think yeah, taking out those literally like maybe 20 seconds save, made the movie a classic <laughs> to me because I, I think that would have ruined it to have given, to have explained what that presence was, but also it would have taken away that exact thing that we just said is so fun to wonder about, which is like, okay, we yeah. know Gordon was damaged, but what was really going on in that place is goes beyond just him having baggage when he started the job, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the same way that Mary is obviously broken, but what broke her? And, you know, uh, it goes back to something that I thought when I first watched Twin Peaks, um, 
uh, that idea that, you know, is it worse that, you know, uh, something from the outside got inside of you and slurped up all your, all the Garmin-Bosia that was um, produced by you raping and murdering your own daughter? Or is it worse that you raped and murdered your own daughter? And that came from you. And you made up this guy to tell you to do it. Right. Do it, Gordon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that like what he's doing, you, you empathize with him through the movie, but you see at one point, like, you know, how weak and how like, okay, he did that thing of failing at a, yeah. pre at a pressure point where we all hope we don't and hope we never would. But like, you suddenly realize like, oh, in a way he's the villain. Um, even though that, that fucking hospital, <laughs> you, you can't, you can't trust that hospital. Um, but that, yeah, the, the, the tunnels connecting the two part, everything about it is uh, the, like the geography of that, the horror of that is so great. And that just existed. I absolutely love the Brad Anderson, you know, he was working on another film, um, and they had rented out part of, part of, you know, that hospital to um do location shooting out of and uh and he was just looking around going i could make an entire film in here what would that film be like and and you know brad anderson i don't think has ever i mean I, i've seen things he's made since then and admired them for different reasons but i don't know if anything's ever been this elemental triumph uh that this movie it's is, true. you know, and like, and it's certain people do that. They hit something out of the park at a certain point in their career. And it's like, you, you, you realize that's the thing you're going to love them for. And you're going to always look for their name. But, uh, I, I never saw anything else from him that was quite as like brilliantly conceived. And just like, like I said, I've seen it probably 20 times. And I can't say that about that many oh, yeah. movies, you know? Yeah. The machinist probably comes closest, but even there, it's a, it's, it's a very simple story in a lot of ways. And session nine is not a very simple story. It is, it is a Rorschach blot. And I love that about it. As long as we're kind of geeking out about stuff. Um, I, I listened to an interview you did on the thinking scared podcast. I think that's what it's called. Um, where you talked about, uh, Michael McDowell's book, The Elementals. And I just wanted to say, I love his work so much. A, a couple of years back, maybe five years ago, five or so, a friend turned me on to uh, his stuff and I just went out and devoured it. And um, uh, The Elementals, it, I don't know, I like Cold Moon Over Babylon a lot too, yeah. but uh, The Elementals really might be the, the jewel in the crown. It's about how he kind of visualizes the ghosts or the manifestations of whatever is happening in this. And... Um, you know, it's got that great quality of this great setting. It's very grounded in a way in these in these houses, these old beach houses that are disappearing into the dunes and covering, being covered with sand. And something supernatural is happening there. And and characters that you think are going to do something about it just keeps get keep getting picked off. And Michael McDowell is kind of brutal in a sense in the way that he will dispatch characters. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, and it's just very eerie because he does sort of have a, a new idea in a sense, or at least a fresh take, a modern view at the time when the book was written in the 80s on this idea of these these old spirits. Yeah, that, that moment where um, they go through the pictures, the photos that, uh, that the main character has taken, and um, they see what the elementals look like and... You know, she's like, well, now we know. And the woman that she's showing them to says, no, they can look like anything. That's not what they look like. They don't look like nothing. You know? <laughs> and, it's, 
and and you're just like well we're fucked yeah you know? <laughs> yeah yeah those are just shapes those are just shapes they make out of sand mm. And the, the way she encounters that. the figure in the house when she's outside climbing around on the dune looking in the window and she sees something uh-huh. moving around in the house, you know, all that stuff is like, <laughs> it's so perfect. I mean, it really is. And, and um, uh, outside of a few kind of dated tropes, um, I think his stuff really holds up now. I think a lot of writers in the 80s were including black characters in a way that felt inclusive and sensitive at the time, but now feels a little magical. Yeah black person ish well in a way it in a way it's a privilege that the white people have that they have forgotten their own history right no it's true that it still comments on something you're right there there is still something in that it's not it's not devoid of awareness but but i know what you're saying i i I absolutely know what you're saying and you know again it's like this is these are these resonances um that were and these currents that we're dealing with today thankfully (laughs) and um you know Inclusion and overlap are so fucking useful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Necessary. Yeah. You know, it's like to, to know how people see things and why they see things the way that they see them. And, you know, know what their frames are and to see through other people's frames. Honestly, realizing how much that filters into your art, artistic tastes is something that it took me, I'm almost embarrassed to say how, how much I. How long I waited before I consciously said, no, 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 uh, start, r- r- let's read all that Octavia Butler stuff that you've been hearing about. Let's read, you know, yeah. let's, let's, and then enjoy the shit out of it. Our culture has robbed us of the chance to grow up, or at least a lot of us, to grow up with this stuff yeah. as, as part of the quote unquote, like core curriculum. So maybe it's changing. All I know is that anyone with a pulse should read Kindred. Yeah, Kindred, which is as much horror as it is anything else. And the horror entirely comes out of actual history and yet it also works like you said so perfectly as a genre like as a genre fan it is something really going on yeah something's really going on and it's got the coming back with the the mark you know the thing that proves that this really happened it's got all that stuff that you want from a genre story but you cannot deny the power of like i don't know if that's if it's correct to say that that's like a metaphor or you know whatever she's doing there but like the 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 power of the story she's telling about a modern character experiencing that is so powerful you know um, yeah, and also, and also the fact that this guy is her responsibility and is one of the things that went in to make her as well. Yeah, you know, it is much that you know, um, can you kill your grandpa? Kind of. <laughs> right. No, you're right. That like her, the way she begrudgingly accepts that she's got to look after this guy after it's tr- proof that like. He's he's irredeemable, you know that it, like re- that's not even going to be part of the story. And I even think the way her husband, or I can't remember if it's boyfriend, but her her significant other, the way he's a pretty good yeah. guy, um, you know, but he's in that he's still blinkered uh, by his privilege too on a certain level. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, the, the worst she has to do essentially is to allow uh, the Congress, which leads to her birth. You know, it's sort of like, I cannot stop you from raping this woman. I cannot stop you from imprinting on this woman and destroying her life. Because if I do, I don't exist. Man. Yeah. It's the worst. (laughs) And it's the best. Well, Gemma, this was so much fun. Honestly, um, I think we even left some tangents unexplored. uh, So I could totally do this again. I would love that. That would be great. Awesome. Well, for now, thanks so much for your time. Thanks a lot. All right, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.
that was that. And if you take one thing away from it, I think Gemma would agree with me. It's you should read Octavia Butler's Kindred. And then after that, you know, it's your life. But I recommend that you read all of Gemma's fiction and uh, even maybe check out my new album. So I'm going to give you some information now. Here's how you can find all that stuff. If you want to read Gemma's fiction or Octavia Butler's amazing book, Kindred, uh, just go to your favorite bookseller. They'll help you out. Uh, If you want to follow Gemma and know what's going on, as well as see her amazing drawings that she's been pumping out lately, uh, go to on Twitter Gemma Files, just at Gemma Files, and you can follow her there. As for me, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Johnny W. That's G-I-A-N-N-I-D-U-B-Y-A. And right now, I'm very excited. I have a brand new album out under my musical identity, Sci-Fi. You can go to sci-fi.bandcamp.com. That's S-I-G-H-F-I-G-H.bandcamp.com. And you'll see the album Horrific. Now, this is a brand new album that came out right before Halloween, so it's still got that new album smell to it. This is a tribute to horror films, particularly my childhood of getting into horror films and renting everything that I could. So it's kind of the VHS era of the of the 80s that is mostly celebrated, but there's a little bit that goes beyond that. And really it's a, you know, it's kind of humorous, kind of not. Uh, it's just bedroom pop with a focus on on my favorite genre of movies and and everything, I guess. And if you want to buy a cool t-shirt, once you've seen the cover, you just might. There's a version of the cover design that is on a shirt you can buy from the feral kids t-shirt shop that's feral-kids.com in their shop you will see the horrific bundles there are two there's one on a black tee and one on your choice of a few different pastel colors you also get with the shirt a download of the album so you can download the album itself at Bandcamp, or you can go to feral kids and get the t-shirt and the album and just to hopefully entice you hopefully this doesn't drive you away i'll include a sample of a song that's on the album this is a song called agnes 19 and it is a reference to Black Christmas, which you'll remember Gemma and I enthused about earlier in the conversation. So Black Christmas fans, horror fans, fans of me, check out Horrific at sci-fi.bandcamp.com and in the shop at feral-kids.com. You should also know that the ambient music you've been hearing throughout this episode was provided by the amazing Daniel Ferris, who is a musician and producer whose work you should just seek out. Just find it. It's out there. He's very good. You're about to hear Agnes from the album Horrific. And uh, while that's playing, you and me, we should probably get out of here. Agnes, Agnes, I'll never tell them what happened. Agnes, sometimes I don't know what happened. Hanging around the attic in a state of rage Banging my poor face into this old birdcage And then there's the sadness Sadness. I'm so sorry, Agnes 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 I can't find my words right now Agnes, 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 where are my words? Feels like I've been banished to the killer zone Taking out my troubles on the telephone It's a short trip to madness, madness And I'm so sorry, Agnes Agnes Sometimes I wish I had never been born 
For more episodes of this show and others that are similar to it, follow FYIZ wherever you get your podcasts.